This episode is part two of the compression and expansion model with Alex Effer of Resilient Training and Rehabilitation. A link for part one can be found in the show notes. On this episode, Alex and I discuss how Alex has continued to refine his mentorship program. We discuss wide and narrow archetypes, their respiration bias, their compensation strategies, and the action of their pelvic diaphragms. We discuss squatting and hinging and the archetypes, and we discuss pelvic compensations among the archetypes. Guys, this was a great discussion with Alex, and I hope you really enjoy it. Okay, man, it's really great to get you back on for part two. Part so, two. Uh, how's that? How's the tuna tuna <clears throat> bit weeks been since we last spoke? It's good, man. Good, getting ready for for this part two. <laughs> yeah, are you in? The, you're in the middle. You're in the middle of your mentorship now. Yeah, you're. Yeah, we're week three right now, so we're actually talking about the feet, and okay. uh, we haven't got into like wide and narrow stuff yet. That's week six. I pushed it back because usually, like uh, week five was compensations, but I added an extra lecture on assessment because people were like, okay, I'd like to spend more time on assessment. And so I broke it down into like the primary assessment. So more like uh, squats, I added multi-segmental rotation because I've been using that a lot more toe touch. Um, And then I did like a whole thing on like table stuff, like compensation. So like when you look at a straight leg raise, like what is it telling you? Um, in terms of the pelvis is rolling away, if the foot's turning out, if the hip is hiking up, depending on where they feel tension. So for example, people who are very stiff, they have a very limited straight leg raise. You'll see that they'll mention that their quad gets stiff and most, and most of the time it's that upper quad. And so that's telling you there that what they're doing is they're using something like a rec fem to lift up the leg because the pelvis is so oriented forward, not only oriented forward, but also probably turning away from that side as they're lifting, right? Because they're trying to get the IR through the spine to lift up the leg. And so just talking about those kind of things. And then like the difference between if you can, if they can keep their leg locked or if their knee starts to slightly bend, like, what does that mean? And, uh, so I wanted to dive a lot deeper into those things because I was getting those questions a lot in tutorials. So essentially what I did is I rewrote evolve based on all the tutorial questions that I got, because for me, it was like, well, maybe I wasn't clear about something when I was first presenting it. And secondly, I wanted to re-record it because when I was recording it initially, it was through zoom. And so I was a little box in the top corner, top right corner. So when I was showing things with the pelvis model or the foot, whatever, it was hard to see. So this time split screen, it's like a 4k camera. Um, but talking about things that also I've evolved my thought process on since I made those recordings, but yeah. So right now it's a long winded, long winded answer to say that we're in week three, we're talking about the foot, um, the knees, um, and then how that relates to the pelvis and the rib cage. So essentially evolved has evolved. Evolve has evolved always. Every single time, every single one evolves. You know, it's, uh, I, when I was, I haven't actually done it in a few years now, but, uh, I did numerous strength and conditioning mentorships here in Ireland. Like I used to teach like a four day sort of strength and conditioning 
mentorship and we covered you know various topics but very very similar to you like how like how different that first mentorship is like say to like your seventh or eighth or ninth uh you know version of it um and it's it's amazing like exactly like as you were saying there you know the feedback you were getting through the tutorials or the q a and you know it sparks in your mind oh how how would i start to like restructure this to make this course even better and Mm -hmm. and like and then like you know you start like it's gas to like when you start like you're like in your head like well, you know what? I'm gonna do like a 2.0 and then a 3.0 version comes along but like you know you start to like re-record all the modules again and refine them and it's it's, it's listen it's always gonna be a constant process because you're you're always gonna be evolving and learning so you're always gonna be going back to refine the course but it's, isn't it funny then when you look back at like the 1.0 version you're kind of like ooh yeah it is you know what like the first one I ever did it was four weeks I didn't include a foot thing. Um, Because to me, I was still trying to process it. Like I was reading, at the time I was reading like three different books about the foot, about gait. Um, I was, I took uh, Gary Ward. I always get mixed up with him and Gary Gray. And uh, so Gary Ward's stuff, because he had just come out with closed chain biomechanics or something like that. And so I wanted to hear his perspective on things. And so me just putting pieces together. So it wasn't until the third evolve where I actually put the foot lecture in and it's evolved a lot more since then. But I think that's the biggest thing, right? Is you have to realize that it's never going to be perfect, but it's, and it's always going to, and that's why I called it evolve because I wanted it intentionally to continue to get better and better. And the only way that it gets better is for, for me to hear what other people have to say and their questions And, you know, probably similar to the mentorship that you were running, it's just like, okay, well, this was confusing the way that I described it before. So I got to restructure, not only just restructure how I'm saying it, but also how I'm sequencing the different lectures so that one builds on top of the other. And so, but you have to be open to it. Like I'm so open to criticism, constructive criticism, that is, um, you know, criticism to say like, Hey, how can I make this better? You know, not just for future people, but even, you know, for people like yourself. So that when I'm, if you ask me any questions after the fact, I have a better way of relaying that information. Right. So you just always have to be evolving. And, you know, I think if you're complacent, that's when, you know, people start to, to get ahead of you, but not only just get ahead of you, but the whole, information and industry gets ahead of you and you become more like a relic so i don't want to be like that yet (laughs) yeah it's it's a it's a continual iterative process you know all the different irritations that come along so like i said like version 1.0 to 2.0 to 3.0 and it's it's the the term that comes to my head too is happy but never satisfied i think that's something you gotta be i think that's something you gotta bear in mind because you know, you get a lot of people who are like, they start writing a book and they're like, ah, oh, they're like, ah, oh, sure, they're never happy. And I'm like, listen, you got to come to terms right now. If you are going to write a book or design a course, you're just going to be in a position where you'll be happy, but you're never going to be satisfied. That's and it. again, that's all part of the, 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 the journey of mastery too. Um, you know, and you're going to, the, 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 the journey of like continually refining one's craft all the time. And that's exactly, it's, it's so, it's so, uh, you know, the name Evolve is just so perfect. Yeah. Oh, you know what? We, 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 we spoke about this last time and, uh, about Robert Greene's book mastery. And that was a big thing for me was, you know, 
when, when he was mentioning, he's like, look, like you're never going to be satisfied with the end product, but what you have to do is you have to throw out, you, you have to throw something out there to see what the response is. So that next time you can improve it. And he does it through books, but for me, it's just like constantly learning. And you know, it's, it's funny because once you start to compile a bunch of this information and knowledge, you actually get a greater understanding of things by reading things outside of the industry. So right now I'm huge on biographies. Like I'm just like going through biographies and just like looking at how these people are not just, it's not just but a success, but like how they overcome adversity and their thought process and just trying to pick apart like how they think and how they process information. And just like I try to do with Evolve, which is like boil things down into fundamental principles, like no matter what, whatever course you take or whoever you listen to, like they're all going to be based on these foundational principles. It is the same thing when you start looking at other industries. And that's what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to look at other domains and being like, does this system match up? Because if you find the right system and the right principles, it doesn't matter what you're looking at. They all should kind of fall within the same, you know, understanding. Like, you know, my brother-in-law, he works on um, trains, like, like brakes. So breaks the trains. So I'll ask him stuff about hydraulics and pneumatics. And although he thinks in terms of trains, I'm like, well, that's a knee joint or that's a shoulder joint. Do you know what I mean? And so you can start to pick these things from different industries and you're like, okay, well, that's where you start to have a real understanding and grasp of things when they can be applied to other things. Sorry, my my fucking my my mic just slipped out at the very start when you started talking there, so I just missed because then my audio went. Who who did you mention there? You you mentioned some someone about Robert Green Mastery when we were talking about it. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. So you yeah. mentioned him last week. Yeah. No, just my I had to slip my mic back in and back, but I got I got about seventy five percent of that. The yeah. the other thing, sorry, the other thing that came into my head, and I meant to say it just before you, your last answer there was the other great thing about you teaching your material information is it really starts to allow you to consolidate that information in your head too. You know what I mean? And 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 again, not only like. No, no, like it, it allows you then to even like further master your refinement of how you how you project that information out to the world. You know, you, you start to like, yeah, as you said there, like there's this sort of like how you even like sequence your modules is one thing, but even like how you deliver the information in those modules, like how you word certain phrases or like how you start to figure out, I think this is a better way to explain this exact topic yeah. or subject to 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 most people because you've done it so many times now and you've kind of you've come up with a really good script in your mind and it just it's an you know again it's just the word again it's just, it is pure mastery and you've mentioned already mentioned robert green just there yeah. but it's just for you as a practitioner for you to like really master your craft teaching is like just one of the best ways to do that it is and you know what i'm lucky luckily enough the majority of my family are teachers and my wife is a teacher, elementary school teacher. And so what I was doing when I was putting together Evolve, like it took me, I mean, what I was doing at the beginning of COVID was like just writing down everything that I knew and trying to organize it <clears throat> because I was being asked to talk on different mentorships. And I was like, okay, well, I got to really figure out how, like what my model is. And what we would do is during COVID, obviously you couldn't really do anything, but you can go outside for a walk. So I would just go outside for a walk with my wife and I would explain things to her. And 
with the understanding that obviously she has no idea anything in this industry. But for me, it was like, <clears throat> do you get some grasp of what I'm talking about, even though you've got no prior knowledge? And when she said yes, then I'm like, okay, this is how I need to explain it, but maybe add a little layer of assuming that people know a little bit. You know what I mean? And so in my first of all, it was like, I was like assuming people had taken advanced calculus. You know what I mean? But then it's just like, okay, now I'm like, all right, I got to assume that these people are just good at addition subtraction. And then I can start to add multiplication, long division, you know, parabolas and all that stuff. Do you know what I mean? So it was like, it was very much like, I got to start with words, then add sentences, then add paragraphs, then put it all together in a story. And so um, it's, it's never going to be good. But what you mentioned about teaching is 100% accurate. Like when I started really grasping this stuff in a better way was trying to explain it to clients, trying to explain it to my wife. Um, and then just people who are like, Hey, like, I'd like to talk more about this. And I would do one-on-one mentorships. And then even like doing stuff like this, like podcasts, like it is great because I realize that, you know, whatever questions you ask me, depending on how complex they are, I got to think about it for a second and be like, how do I explain this to somebody who may not be seeing me do anything? They may just be listening to the audio. How can I explain in a way that they can visualize it or they can get some understanding and maybe they won't get a full grasp of it and that's okay. It requires deeper diving into certain concepts, but, you know, having a general idea to be like, Hey, this piqued my interest. I want to dive deeper into it because I don't fully understand it. So it's definitely like, it's definitely can be challenging, but it's like, it's one of my, like, it's really what I'm passionate about right now is educating this stuff and trying to make it simpler because I can see the power of, you know, this information with just clients that I work with and how much changes you can get and just accelerate your process in terms of getting results with them. And so <clears throat> that's why I want to share, you know, the mistakes that I've made just as much as the successes, you know? Big time. Yeah. Big time. I think the big takeaway there is teaching definitely is a massive part of mastery. Huge. Um, I think your wife's probably lying to you too. She's probably, yeah, of course I understand. And she's like, exactly. I just hope he shuts up now. I'm just saying, yeah. To, to, That's it. To, you, you know yeah. what? She, she does all the editing. So she has to listen to me and she's like, so when I come in, I'm like, Hey, how's it going? Like, don't talk to me. I'm, I'm hearing your voice too much, you know, but you know what? She's actually like, Hey, I actually understand what you're talking about because I've listened to Evolve. So she's basically taken Evolve like five times by editing the material. So that's a uh, that's hilarious to say that because when I I recorded one of my mentorships and it was like twenty hours of material, like and by the end of it, the guy who did most of the editing, like he he like was full up to speed in energy systems. He was like, "Hey, lactic, lactic, aerobic. I get it. I understand it." <laughs> yeah. and, he, and he was and he was like, "Buyer motor abilities. I get it. Yeah, I get it." So it was hilarious. Like he could, yeah. he understood, he understood like the whole uh, physical preparation lingo by the end of it with gas. Yeah. <laughs> so um, today just want to, want to get back on and dive a little bit deeper into wides and narrows and maybe certain, um, uh, definitely around like squatting and hinging. I have certain questions around that, but wides and arrows. And if maybe if we get into um, conversation strategies, one thing I, st I still don't fully understand and we'll touch on this maybe just um, 
before the end is the pelvic compensations, you know, like this right oblique and left up shift. I still not fully clear on, on those myself now, mm. but I just want to give my summary to make sure I'm correct here. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So we have, we have wides, we have narrows as our archetypes. Um, a wide is a, um, is a exhalation bias with an inhalation strategy and a narrow is the opposite there an inhalation bias with an exhalation strategy. So that's right so far. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. And then because of that, uh, an exhalation strategy in terms of, so a wide, an exhalation strategy in terms of their pelvis has them in a nutated sacrum. Mm-hmm. That's correct, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And so then their their iliums then are extended, ioard, and adducted. Mm-hmm. Their, their yep. And then the pelvic diaphragm at the outlet level, they're in, an, from a muscle action standpoint, they're overcoming. Mm-hmm. And then with orientation, anterior pelvic diaphragm is concentric and the posterior is eccentric in a wide yes okay and then the narrow then is just the vice versa essentially of mm-hmm. all that yeah so they're they're counter sacrum yeah because they're in an inhalation bias their iliums are flexed externally rotated abducted and then their pelvic diaphragm from an action muscle action standpoint is yielding yes and then the orientation is anterior pelvic floor is eccentric, posterior is then concentric. Yes. So oh, so sorry, their 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 posterior pelvic floor is going to be eccentric overcoming, right? In a narrow. Yeah. So they're is gonna it? be eccentric. They're gonna be eccentric the whole time. It's just gonna be eccentric overcoming in the back. Because it's it's you're gonna have a descended pelvic floor. So yeah, why it has an ascended pelvic floor. Let's let's Break it down. Like, let's just say, assuming that the pelvic floor moves as one whole unit altogether. Yeah, yeah. Say that the wide's pelvic floor is more ascended, mm-hmm. it's more concentric. Okay, and then the narrow is going to be more descended, which therefore means it's going to be in an, a lengthened position, eccentric. But the front of it's going to be yielding to allow the foot to go forward. Yeah. In gait, but the back is going to be overcoming because I'm going to get a little push from the back because of the the sacrum is moving closer to the sit bones. So I'm going to get that pelvic floor to be relatively ascended versus the front of it. That makes okay. Sense. Okay. So now, hold on. Now, now I need to, <laughs> this fucking model. I tell you, you're like, I get it. And they're like, no, I don't get it. I get it. And I don't get it. Yeah. So just go back. All right. So we're, we're at the, we're at the pelvic diaphragm, wide, narrow pelvic diaphragm. So I, I have the, I have the, the biases and, and the, the, the strategy. I yes. get those so far. Okay. So with a wide in their outlet with their pelvic diaphragm. Okay. And then we have orientation and then we have actions. We have orientation, which is either concentric or eccentric. And then we have an action, which is either yielding or overcoming the, or the wides are overcoming in their pelvic diaphragm. They're ascended. Yes. And concentric. then concentric. Mm-hmm. Oh, so sorry, they're concentric. Sorry. So so they're they're concentric, mm-hmm. but they're but then it's it's a, it's an overcoming or yielding at either side of their 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 pelvic diaphragm. Is that what you're saying mm-hmm. to me? Yeah. Oh I, I have I have that flip flopped around. I thought it was a different orientation and an and a one action over it. It's the other way around. It can't be. It can't be because it's got to be like a uniform. It's like, okay, so it's like the diaphragm. If you picture the diaphragm, like the thoracic diaphragm, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You can have, 
So if I inhale, the whole diaphragm contracts to go down. The thing is, is that there are certain parts of the diaphragm, like the anterior diaphragm, that is going to descend more than the posterior because of the change in shape of the infrasternal angle. So basically, like as I inhale, the infrasternal angle during normal breathing should open, okay? And the thoracic diaphragm should descend, okay? The thing is, is that the spine doesn't move as much as the rib cage. And so the anterior diaphragm is going to move more than the posterior. So what you could have is you could have an anterior diaphragm that is descended and a relative keyword is relative because both of them are going to move together as a unit. It's just the posterior part is not going to move as much. So it's going to be relatively ascended or exhaled. Okay. So that is going to be analogous to your wide. Okay. Your wide mm -hmm. infrasternal angle. So the posterior, sorry, your narrow infrasternal angle, because the reason is, is with a wide, it's the opposite. We've got the anterior diaphragm that is actually more ascended and the posterior diaphragm is relatively more descended. So that is why it's more effective to lay them on their back. Because if I've got a diaphragm that is more descended in the back, then how do I punch that up to make it more ascended? Well, if I lay on my back, all my guts go towards the ground. And not only does it go towards the ground, but also goes towards my head, right? So it doesn't just go down, but it goes down and up towards my head. And there's like research to support that, that fluid will go down and up, right? And so, um, so that would, those organs are going to do is they're going to punch that posterior diaphragm up. And that's why we want the, because uh, it's going to be exhaled, which like, if we think about the thoracic diaphragm and pelvic diaphragm, when the, when the thorax, thoracic diaphragm descends, that's contracting, okay? But what should happen is that the pelvic floor should also descend and that should be lengthening, right? So if I want to lengthen the thoracic diaphragm, it has to lift up, right? And the posterior is the, the pelvic floor now has to contract to also lift up. So there should be opposing things happening. The problem is once you get a wide and a narrow, they move similarly now and they shouldn't. Because when I breathe in, my infrasternal angle should open, but my pelvis angle should close. My infrapubic angle should close. But with a compensation, like a wide and narrow, they move together because the pelvis has just oriented forward as a unit. And so now what's ever happening at the infrasternal angle is not happening at the pelvis anymore. So that's why they match up. So when we look at a narrow who has a descended pelvic floor because they're an inhaled axial skeleton, we have to say that they've got a the orientation of the muscle. So we've got the position of the muscle, which is concentric and eccentric. And then we've got the action, which is overcoming and yielding. So because the pelvic floor, because the pelvis is opened up like a flower, as you said, flexed, abducted, externally rotated, 
as these sit bones get closer together, the muscles sag like a hammock, right? And so that now has to be eccentric because those muscles are lengthened and it's going to be uniformly eccentric, okay? But the difference is, is the anterior part is going to descend more because it is going to catch the guts, right? The guts are going to go down and forward. And that's what allows me to get to deeper hip flexion. But because the sacrum is being tucked underneath, those muscles are now, they're still eccentric because they're descended, but they're going to have to be overcoming because otherwise, if they weren't, I would just hinge my squat, right? So, or alternatively, if you've got somebody who they're both yielding, then you've got somebody who has no control when they squat and they just fall right down to the ground. So you've seen those people who can't, when they squat down, they have, they have like this hypermobility. So they just fall right down to the ground, right? Like those are people who may have a yielding uniformly. And that's an issue because now they're using their lumbar spine a lot more to move, right? They're orienting their whole pelvis backwards. That, that that actually that that does that does really, really help. So just using the narrow again as our example there and that pelvic diaphragm. So I get that it's from an action standpoint, then it's yielding because of their their bias. Mm-hmm. Um and then the orientation, you're saying it's it is overall it's eccentric. It's just that the anterior is relatively more eccentric than yes. the posterior. But I, I have I have even seen diagrams where it does say like you know, and it goes like eccentric anterior, and it says concentric posterior. Yes, but but, but that, but that's not that too. That's not fully accurate though. Then is it? No. It's it really is. It should say eccentric, eccentric, but it should be like eccentric with like a little or saying relative more in the front yes. to the back. Yeah, because my my understanding was the fact that the sacrum counter nutates. You got a concentric orientation, but it was yielding in in the narrow, mm. and it's not necessary. I suppose it's not necessarily that that's wrong. It's just not as accurate really as well as you said because yeah. you, you you just said that, right from from an action standpoint yielding right we get that but from an orientation what what you may see or what was in my mind up until this discussion is so good your clearness we know was that anterior was east this is narrows by the way anterior was eccentric posterior was concentric orientation but really it's more accurate to say it's all eccentric it's just that the anterior is relatively more eccentric to yes. the posterior yeah. And I made that mistake too. When in my earlier thought process of it, I put concentric at the back and I, because I didn't appreciate what I like, I didn't appreciate the yielding and overcoming aspect of it. And that is the actual action. So it is the position, which is, is it lengthened or is it shorter? Right. And it, how, what, how is it acting? Is it producing force or is it accepting force? And I didn't appreciate that yet. And so the way that I think about it is that inside the pelvis, you've got everything eccentric and then you've got one side's yielding, one side's overcoming. But on the outside, so we think now about your glutes and your piriformis and the deep external rotators, those are going to be concentric. Okay, so the outside musculature will be concentric, but inside's got to be yielding because it's got to allow me to go down, right? If it was overcoming or concentric, I should say, sorry, if it was overcoming and concentric, I would not be able to move, 
Okay. What would happen is it would keep on pushing me forward. So there's your sway back people, right? Okay. So they wouldn't be able to actually move down to a squat because the squat, like the pelvis needs to be able to sit back to some degree, which means I need some type of eccentric there. I need some length there. Okay. And then because, I mean, if you go back to like, you know, principles, a muscle's got to lengthen before it contracts. Think about it this way. As I go down into a squat, the muscles need to lengthen. And then as I come up, that requires a lot of force into the ground. So now as I ascend from a squat, I now need to contract everything. I need to bring my, like the, the ends of the joints closer together to be able to produce this force, to lift up the pelvic floor. And then now it needs to switch towards this overcoming, right? And what, what it needs to do now is it needs to go from eccentric yielding to an overcoming action. And now the back becomes concentric yielding to create that force, right? I can't go from eccentric yielding to concentric overcoming. It doesn't, you can't do that, right? It just doesn't work. The only time that it happens like that, because I'm at the bottom of the squat, so it still has to maintain some eccentric, but it's moving towards concentric. So that's why it's an eccentric overcoming now at the front, but it's concentric yielding because that allows for the anomalies to IR, right? Becoming more of this wider infrasternal angle, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think a huge part of this whole model too is the idea, like the, the word relative or the one Bill uses an awful lot is superimposed. You know, like IR yeah. being superimposed on ER or like, you know, it's it's like, because in our heads, like we think you breathe in and you breathe out. And it's kind of like, well, you're always breathing in and you're always breathing out during breathing in and breathing out. It's just that one is more dominant almost. Like there's always like a super imposition of an action over and under. Like there's always, there's always an I or an E or going on all the time. It's like, but in, in our kind of left brain sort of black and white sides of our brains where like, it's yeah. just this and Very then linear. this. Yeah, where it's like, no, everything's on a spectrum and it's just that one is like more superimposed on top of the other. Like it's never like, yeah. there's always a bit, like everything is always involved and like in all the time, it's just like a different sort of, it depends, like it's all like space and time, space time. Yeah. It's just like, it's just like where on that spectrum we are and that given moments in time. So like, like, you know, as Bill always say, you know, like, because that's another great thing about your work and like the likes of Connor Harris and, and Zach, because again, you kind of take Bill's stuff and make it more digestible. But like, I know like when, when you, because Bill could kind of, you could just present something and kind of not give more like the sort of foundational context. So like, you know, when you're like looking at a picture at femurs and he'd be like, oh, the, the bottom, like that femur actually is ER there. And like, but it looks IR, but he means ER relative, relative like, and you're like, oh, it is it like, it's, it's globally, it is IR, but there's a relative ER there at the end in this particular individual. But if you weren't told that you'd be like, I, I don't know. I don't see how that's ER. It looks IR to me. Like, yeah, but it's cause it's relative. Like, so I'm just saying this for the listeners that if all this sounds very confusing, it, it is <laughs> initially, yeah, yeah. but I think just grasping the concepts of like, this idea of relative, this relativity that something is relative to something else explains an awful lot when you're when you're kind of conceptualizing this model, or if you're looking at any photographs, like a postural and assessments, and then just as well, this idea of super imposition that Bill always talks about, like that, you know, that everything is like actually happening at once. It just depends where in a specific moment in time that's happening that'll kind of make things more clear as well. So yeah. it can be quite confusing. 
for me, like I don't personally use the word like superimpose or anything like that because that is extremely confusing for most people. And so, you know, what, what I'll say is if I'm moving forward, right, I am going to be moving more towards IR. If I'm moving back, I'm going to be moving more towards ER. And so that's why like you talk, like I talk the, about the difference between the femur internally rotating which has to happen with some degree of hip flexion because in order for the femur to internally rotate, I need the anterior glute med. The anterior glute med doesn't work unless there's some hip flexion. And same thing with the semi-membranosis, semi-tendinosis. Like that happens because of some degree of knee flexion plus hip flexion. So that's why I'm like, okay, well, we, let's differentiate between earlier internal rotation or this femoral internal rotation, which requires my center of gravity to go backwards or stay back, right? And so going backwards is towards ER. So I'm getting the femur to internally rotate because if I move towards ER, it means some degree of hip flexion versus if I'm pushing my body forward towards my toes, that requires more hip extension. So that is a different kind of internal rotation um, where I have to now propel off my met head versus my heel, right? Whereas like to get femur internal rotation, I need the heel to be able to move to allow the arch to move. Whereas when I go into hip extension, I need the heel to lock and the pelvis, oh, sorry, the heel to lock so that I can propel off the met head. It's not toe off yet. Toe off happens once I lose the med head and go towards the toe. But the best way to think of it is I've got a femur moving on a fixed pelvis. That is your, you know, femur internal rotation. And then after that, I've got a femur that's internally rotated. It's maxed out on its internal rotation. In order for me to put more force in the ground, I now have to move my pelvis forward. So now I've got a pelvis moving over a femur. But the problem that people run into is that the pelvis isn't able to get into an internally rotated position to start. So the femur can't internally rotate initially. So what they do is they have this counter nutated externally rotated pelvis that moves forward, trying to get this hip extension. So they do it from their back, right? Or they don't have enough femur internal rotation. So they pick up the rest of it through their back the lower back by arching their back or they hyperextend their knees or they turn their foot out, whatever they need to do, the valgus, their knee. And so for me, like, you know, Bill is like super duper smart, like crazy smart. Right. And for me, I'm just like, okay, I listen to what he says. And then I bring it back to everything that I've learned from different courses and just logically thinking about these things, just like some original thought. And that's where kind of my thought process comes together. Just like, how can I amalgamate all this information and how does it make sense to me? And so I, and I'm very particular with the words that I use because then I'll get confused myself. It's like superimpose this, superimpose that. I'm like, dude, like we just have to say that the center of gravity is moved back. The center of gravity is moving forward. And then we got to think about, is it the pelvis that's doing the action or is it the femur that's doing the action? So is it coming from the foot or is it coming from up top? Like if I go hip extension, it's more of a top down 
IR. If it's more of this bottom up where now the heel has to move to get this chain reaction effect up, this, this ripple effect of internal rotation all the way up the chain. Okay, well now that is gonna be a femur, right? Like let's cut the body at the hips and see like, is it the pelvis that's moving or is it the femur that's driving the show? And as you shift your center of gravity back, you're moving towards your heels. So it's gotta be the femur, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's it. I tell you why that that word superimposed in my head. It's because last year when I really dove into this model, I listened to every single every single one of Bill's podcasts from the very first one all the way through. So like, and that took about six weeks as I was going through the whole deep study. Like I started off with PRI home courses and I went deep into Bill's model and just went through his like select. I I was very selective in certain YouTube videos because it depended on what I was looking. You know, if I was focusing on wide versus narrow that day. I focus my study a bit more, but I, I, but every morning and like, so I go for a walk in the morning, I go to the gym. I was literally listening to Bill for about six hours every day to, to catch up, <laughs> to, to catch up in like three years. So like literally it was, it was like six weeks every day. His, and like, I remember texting him saying, I was like, man, you love the word superimposed. Cause it was literally that word was popping up so much in his earlier podcast. Yeah. And, and then he, and then he, he was like, well, it's, it's the perfect word to explain, you know, this, it but uh, a, a, an area I'd love you to get into too is squatting versus hingement wise and narrows because, you know, I've you know listening to Angus Bradley and your stuff and, and Connor and other people, um, and when I first get when I'm, and I'm, I say first get into this model, I'm still learning this model. And what was a bit like contradictory to my experience was like the, it, and it, it's probably because of compensation patterns. But it's that like you know wides generally are are better at squatting and lousy at hinge and vice versa for narrows. But I've seen the opposite. Like I'm a narrow as well. And I'm a shitty squatter and I'm a really good hinger. Yeah. And is that just because uh, I've got a layer of compensation that's leading to that? Is it or can you give me insights into that? Yeah. So <clears throat> for me, the way that I see it is that you've got your wide, you got your narrow. And based on the pelvic floor anatomy and the pelvis shape, like we talked about, whereas the wide is more internally rotated, the narrow is more externally rotated, biased, right? Like it's not just that everyone is externally rotated. It's just like there's, they tend to be better at those things, right? And so at that initial stage, you've got the narrow that's better at squatting. You got the wide that's better at hinging because of the architecture of their pelvis, right? Now, and, and as I said, the reason why they are wide and narrow is because they have this layer of compensation that doesn't allow them to be as dynamic or have these relative motions that allows them to go in and out of external and internal rotation, right? Because ideally what we want is at the beginning of the squat, we want to look more like a narrow. At the middle of the squat, we want to look more like a wide. At the bottom, we want to narrow it out again, right? Like we go ER, IR, ER. We don't have that dynamic ability because the pelvis is oriented forward for a narrow. It's coming from their TL junction. So more of this top down thing, whereas the wide it's coming from the feet and it's going to come from that L4, L5. That's going to be orienting forward. Right. <clears throat> so like narrow, think of it more as like a rib cage driven thing. Whereas a wide is going to be more of a pelvic or foot driven thing. Right. So anyway, my point is, is like, as we get more compressed, okay, so whatever you do, maybe you're playing a sport, maybe it's your, your, the way that you work or the way that you stand or the way you sit, whatever it is, you start to get more and more compressed. <clears throat> well, once you get to the second layer of compression, so basically a wide should have better internal rotation that requires 
your sternum to be able to pump up or your chest wall to be able to expand. Okay. Let's take that away now. So wide now gets more compressed, more stiff. So we take that away. Okay. Now they suck at hinging, right? You take a narrow and then you take away what they're good at. And that is their anterior pubic floor is open so that they're able to squat and get hip flexion. Let's and in between their shoulder blades is open. So let's take that away now. Let's retract their scapula. So now they don't have it, okay? So now in this case here, you're gonna have a narrow and wide that are gonna move very similar to each other, right? A wide, sorry, a narrow is gonna start to lose its ability to squat, right? But it's going to pick up its ability to hinge. The thing is though is, they still have this pelt, this posterior pelvic tension. So they're not really hinging from like a, a relative motion standpoint. They're not actually nutating their sacrum. What they are doing is they're grabbing onto their rectus, pulling the, the sternum down. And what that does is that creates this fake um, yielding of their back especially their T8 to T11. And then they get this fake internal rotation that allows them to hinge. So essentially what they're doing is they are hinging through their TL junction. Okay. So you could be like, oh yeah, they look good, but look at them from the back and you'll see their shoulder blades are being pinned together and they're arching through their TL junction as they stand up because they can't extend their hips and they don't have internal rotation of their hips because they just naturally don't have it. And so what you start to see now, you start to see their feet collapse in, their feet turn out, their TL junction arch, right? Because remember, if they've got this counter nutated sacrum, which requires also lumbar flexion, they're not going to be able to extend from there. So they got to go one level up. And they're naturally a little more compressed at that TL junction, just like because their pelvis is counter-nutated, they're going to double time on that area and that's where they're going to produce their force. So what they do is, okay, if I want to improve internal rotation, I told you the pump handle has to go up. So what is an easy way to cheat to do that? Well, I can jam my shoulder blades together and I can flare my ribs up and that's going to lift my chest up and then that's going to give me this fake internal rotation. So that's what they do, right? So the narrows and wides are going to start to move the same way because they're going to get compressed in the areas that should be open. And now they're like, okay, they both move the same way. They both have limited IR and ER. But identifying where they are going to compensate is going to be key. A wide has a nutated sacrum, so they're going to arch their lower back, which means L4, L5 is already going to have a bend in it. They're already going to be extended in the L4, L5. If I can't get the hip extension or the internal rotation needed, I'm going to do it from that space even more so, right? Whereas again, the narrow is going to do it from more up top. And so now you start talking about herniated disc and spondies, right? You got a, you got a wide that... It's like, why do people always come with back pain, L4, L5, L5, S1? It's because that is where they are using their internal rotation to be able to just walk or pick something off the ground. 
Whereas a narrow is, I'm not saying that wides can't get herniated disc, of course, but a narrow, they extend to their TL junction, which means they're putting force from their TL junction down into like basically the shifting center of gravity towards her toes. So now you've got this marshmallow that's squeezing on the front and then opening up at the spine, opening up the back. And then that's where you start to get some issues around the disc, right? Because they're not arching through that L4, L5 like the wide is. So if I want to be a good hinger, I need to be able to internally rotate my femurs and be able to nutate my sacrum. So basically you wanna be like a wide. If I want to be better at um, squatting, I wanna have a shape of a pelvis that looks more like a narrow at certain times, right? And then you start talking about what's the difference between descending and ascending a squat. Those are gonna have different pelvic shapes because as I go down, I need some degree of absorption so I really can't be overcoming at any point going down. Do you know what I mean? Like of the anterior pelvic floor, I should say. Anterior pelvic floor, okay? Only at the bottom should I start to have an eccentric overcoming to stop me, right? But at the but going down, it should be yielding, yielding, but then the, the muscle will become concentric, eccentric. Like those will change based on the depth. And then as I'm ascending, there should be a lot of overcoming stuff going on. Right. Good. Good. There's a lot in there, but I mean, the great thing is we can, I know me personally, I'll be listening back to that a few times because that that was very helpful and it has cleared up an awful lot of stuff there, but I definitely know I need to just listen through a few times just to get it more sort of consolidated in my own mind. And I'm just conscious of our time here too. The the other area that I'm personally still, this I'd be very fuzzy now on this, is those pelvic orientations. Just some other things too, maybe just to, and listen, once it hits your time limit, again, we can stop and we can, we can book in another time. Um, when when Bill says narrows are top down and wides are bottom up, what he, what exactly does he mean by that? Uh, it's it's something to do with like an a narrow like the their compression is like from it's like from is it is it is it the TL junction up and then with the with the wides it's like it's from like L four S five down and he what do you know what he means by when he says narrows are bottom up and wides are top down? To me, it's like what I was saying about the TL junction, right? So what they do, okay, so you've got a narrow who is their axial skeleton is inhaled, like we said, but yeah. then they superimpose this exhale, okay? So their rib cage now gets squeezed and that's what makes them narrow. So like their pecs get stiff, their lats get stiff, their serratus gets stiff, all this thing, they squeeze their pelvis. And when you squeeze something, sorry, squeeze their rib cage, when you squeeze it like that, that muscle tension <clears throat> is not going to squeeze me just in place, but it's going to shove me forward. So <clears throat> now what I've got is I've got this, because um, remember, I got to put force into the ground. So how am I putting force into the ground as a narrow? I'm doing it through shrugging, through rounding. And so it's all going to happen up here or at the TL junction. Whereas the wide, they're going to compensate first at the feet, then the knees, then the lower back. Do you know what I mean? Why is, why is, why is that, Alex, with the wide? Because why the wide, 
So the wide has this, um, they've got this axial skeleton that is IR'd. Okay. More so they're pushing, pushing down. Yeah. They're pushing down into the ground, but then the ground is pushing back. Right. So what they're doing is you've got a rib cage because they're inhaling, they're inhaling. So what happens if I inhale, I shove myself backwards, right? I'm externally rotating. So I inhale, but I've got this center, this center, uh, this pelvis that's more IR, axial skeleton is a little more IR. So I've got the center of gravity that's forward and I've got this inhale that's shoving me back. So what I'm doing is I'm pushing into the ground to shove me back to get this inhale. Does that make sense? Because remember, if, I'm, if my center of gravity is going forward, it's IR. If it's going backwards, it's ER. So I've got this IR inside, but I've got this ER outside. How do I get ER? I can't just maintain the same position in ER. Once I inhale, I've got to shift my center of gravity backwards. So that's why I'm saying the heel and the foot for the wide is so important. It is what's driving the show because I've got gravity that's pushing me down, but then I inhale. So now I've got this, I'm now like pushing up against gravity and I'm doing it through my feet. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, I'm, I'm constantly like ascending out of a squat as a wide and I'm mm. constantly descending in squat as a narrow. Yeah, you you said something I heard you on a podcast that it actually really helped me. The fact that a narrow is an inhalation bias, you were like they're they're essentially floating away, so they have yeah. to compress to keep down on the ground. Whereas yeah. a wide then they're pushing down, so they have to come up with a strategy to come away from the ground. Exactly. So, a, yeah, but... a wide a wide always has a bar on their back, right? Whereas a narrow is always sorry a wide is always picking up something off the floor a narrow always has a barbell on their back mm. right if the barbell's on my back it's shoving me forward but it's a top down because the barbell's up here on my shoulders whereas the wide is constantly trying to pull a trap bar off the ground right trying to push away from the ground so that's why they're more concentric right and something we we touched on the last day and and um when I said it to it kind of spark it seems to trigger something new that essentially what, what a big part of this whole model too is a center of mass management in the base of support mm-hmm. and because we have these archetypes they have different strategies to manage the, their center of mass and their base of support so another thing too I think is very important in this model is like how the wides and narrows get over to the right but they, so they get to the same destination but they get there through different to to different pathways or, or different routes because of their structure. So uh, am I right in thinking so, you know, a, a narrow is more expanded A to P and compressed uh, laterally, where it's the opposite in a Y. They're more expanded laterally and they're more compressed A to P mm-hmm. because of their structures. Mm-hmm. So does that lend, so then that that's is that one reason why they get over to the right using different strategies? So with the narrow, from my understanding, and again, you can, I like the eyes you're making there. It's like, I don't know if he's fully correct here, which is good. But with, with a narrow, for me to get to the right, do I, I go forward first because I can expand um, anteriorly and then I shove over to the right because of the, the procession going on. That, you know, I, the procession actually makes me left, but then this used to confuse me too. The procession is going left, but the idea is that if you're being shoved left, you're going to counteract that by going right. That's why mm-hmm. you end up right. 
Yeah. yeah. So 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 basically, an arrow goes forward first and then to the right, but with a with a wide, they go over to the right first and then go forward. Yeah. But they both but they both end up forward and right essentially. Am I correct in that? Is that? Yes. <clears throat> but think of it this way: there's a concept called angular momentum, right? I guess it goes with with precession, but essentially. Yeah. If I am a figure skater and I want to speed up my turn, I got to get really tight. Okay. So that is like a sharper turn, right? This is the way that I process my head. Whereas if you got a figure skater want to slow down, they got to open up their arms. They get wider. Okay. So because of the structure of the pelvis for a wide, they are actually wider. They have a wider base support, right? Whereas a narrow has more of this narrower base of support because of this tighter turn. So you got to think about, I've got this wider turn as a, as a wide, I've got this narrow turn or the sharper turn as a narrow. Okay. So if I take a pelvis, I'm thinking it like this for a narrow, I am taking my left ASIS and I am turning it towards my right big toe. Okay. That's a sharp turn, right? Whereas a wide is turning this really wide turn and it's going to be turning towards this right back heel. Okay. Mm. That makes sense. It's like yeah, I'm yeah, outside yeah. of my foot and ending up at my heel. So what a wide will do is they will arch their lower back on that left side to shove them. So they're L4, L5, L5, S1, shoving them towards their right heel. Now the right heel has to stop them from continually turning in space because they're turning outside of that base support. So they now have to collapse that foot inwards, that right foot in, and that shoves them towards their toes. So that's how you get that forward push. Whereas the narrow, they're staying within their base support because they've got this tighter turn, this narrower turn. So what they do is they go forward on the left and then they turn right to the right side. They yeah. don't have to go outside their base support. They stay within it. And so from an exercise thought process, it's like what I need to do for a narrow, first of all, is get IR through that right side. I need to get femoral internal rotation on that right side to be able to even think about pushing towards the left. Because right now we have to assume that they've got no IR, right? Because their structure, their pelvis. And so I need to be able to make sure that right foot is able to, that right arch is able to go down, but not dumping, but by doing it through the heel. So think of like a front foot elevated versus a rear foot elevated split squat, right? Or if you really want to get fancy, you can do um, a rear foot elevated split squat, right rear foot elevated split squat with a wedge, so heels elevated with a, um, like a rack position on that right side, if you really want to get fancy. Right. Um, but the, the intention of that would be, I've got to produce internal rotation. I want to do it through the pelvis, not through my TL junction. So the rack position is going to keep my TL junction open, right? The heels elevated is going to keep my center of gravity back so I can access my heel so I can get the eversion of the heel, not just dumping my foot in. Okay. Now I get some femoral internal rotation and then that ascending action is going to allow me to push myself towards the left because that left side is unweighted. Do you see what I'm saying? So <clears throat> all that is to say is 
The narrow is going to turn within the base support, which then turns them towards their big toe. Okay. So uh, on the big toe on the right, big toe on the right. Okay. Yeah. They're going to go forward on the left. So if you think of the pelvis, they're going forward on the left and turning towards the big toe. So they face towards the right. They got this right hip hike because of it. And so what they need to do is they need to get the heel to be able to turn because right now they're going towards that right big toe. Okay. Mm-hmm. You get the heel to be able to turn to get the arch down. A wide is going outside the base support. So that right foot's really rolling out, orienting outwards. And so they need to create this compensatory IR, right? Where they dump everything in. So you start to get this right valgus, right? This right VL, right TFL that kicks on. And so what I need to do first is I need to make sure they actually have true internal rotation. So reduce the concentric activity of the TFL, you know, get that femur, get that posterior capsule open on that right side. So I got to bring them back on the right first to get that femoral IR. Then I can start to drive them forward through hip extension yeah. to be able to then push them to the left. The difference is, is the, the wide. So then we got to go towards the left. We've got to turn back to the left. But the caveat is I don't have IR on that left side. It's hard for me to get it. So in order for me not to turn outside my base support, I've got to catch that rotation and shoot it back towards that left heel. So now I've got to get that femoral IR through the left side, right? It's got to happen for both wide and narrow, but the narrow will have to come back double time on the left because they've got no IR, whereas the wide needs to go back on the right then shove them over towards the left, then come back on the left, right? And, and final, final thing real quick, because it's your time there to go. Final thing real quick, is is that then what, and again, kind of go back, because I suppose I've learned it many from Bill. I've heard Bill say, narrows are down on the left and up on the right, but the wide is down on the right, up on the left. Because of that, because that, so again, if I'm, if I'm that. a, if I'm, yeah, because of that, what we just spoke about, because if I'm a narrow, I'm going forward on the left first. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm obviously IRing down there. Well, I'm more on my left initially. Mm-hmm. In this comp- so then that means I'm off, I'm quote unquote, I'm relatively more off on the right because of her. Yeah, yes. you're more, so the narrow is more down on the left, up on the right, but then it's the opposite with the wide because they've shifted to the right first. Uh, so I've heard them yes. say they're down on the right and then up on the left. And does that lead them to, does that lead a narrow and a wide to kind of, and I know it's 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 there's a lot of gray area, but would they present with a more like would a narrow present with a more common pelvic orientation strategy versus a wide would be more with like so like would it is like so basically the question I ask is there is there a pelvic compensation that's more common in a wide versus a narrow and vice versa because of that? I like that. Yeah, like you know, you know, it's like those, like you know, the the the. the um, this is something we'll have to discuss another day too, like because I still don't understand, like you know, right oblique versus, uh, you know, a left up shift versus, and I've heard people who's different, like Connor Harris uses different. He's like a sagittal orientation versus, uh, you know, a, a, a lateral orientation. I've heard other people say like, and maybe they're just different, or I don't know if, if people are using different names for the same ones, and then like the right oblique versus a left up shift. Like I've just heard so that's what. Names. So so that's what I. That, so that's how I describe it is lateral orientation, sagittal orientation. I mean, I don't really do sagittal that much anymore. It's like oblique or lateral. And and 
the thing with the lateral orientation is it's like more like this frontal plane shift. Like I remember, you know, a few years ago, I was reading Mal Lyman syndrome and he mentioned the concept of a left upslip. And he mentioned that it had to do with more of this frontal plane action of the pelvis versus an oblique rotation. And so that way, so for that reason, I put it in um, my mentorship is like, this is a left upslip. This is a lateral orientation, right? I think, I think, you know, Connor, I think Connor took the course back, you know, and that kind of helped him understand, took evolve way back. And that helped him understand this too. Um, but the concept of the lateral orientation is basically I'm a right oblique. Okay. So I've done exactly what we talked about, but the thing is, is so you've got your wide, that is more on your arch and you've got your narrow that is more towards the med heads. Okay. If that makes sense when they turn yeah. the pelvis. And so what happens then as I actually see this more with narrows than wides, cause they don't have IR is um, I'm sorry. I see this more with wides compared to narrows. And the reason is, is because what happens is I've got this relative IR through this hip on the right side. All right. But I've got so much weight on that right side that I need some extra help. So what I do is I shove my pelvis towards my toes now. So now I've got this rectus abdominis strategy on this right side to propel me forward on the right to push me to push back to the left. And so now I get this ER through the right hip. So it's like this right posterior capsule gets jammed forward and creates this right varus. You know who I also see it with? is people who do hip shifts too early. They're like, oh, I got to do this left adductor pullback all the time. And what they're really doing is if I do a left adductor pullback, they forget what happens to the right side. The right side needs this hip extension to turn me to the left. They don't have it because that hip is ER'd. They don't have IR in that right hip. So what they're doing is they're arching the right lower back which now takes the pelvis that should have a right hip hike and jams it down towards the ground, just like we talked about. And this left hip comes up because they've got no IR on the left hip either. And so what they're doing is they're doing it through side bending. And then boom, you get this left hip hike, right side of the pelvis goes down. And you're like, well, what's happening? This right side has no IR, but a lot of ER. And the left side's got a lot of IR. The only reason why the left side has IR is because the hip is hiked up, which now has made the acetabulum face forward. It's lengthened the hamstring so that the posterior capsule is not compressed anymore. Do you know what I mean? Um, and that's not yeah. the hamstring because of other things associated with what the hamstring will do to the sit bone. And I got more left straight leg raise, but really what's happened is I've just dumped my pelvis up and over that right um, that right femur. And that's coming because if I'm hiking up my left hip, it's a left side bend. So it's a rib cage driven frontally. So the best way to think of it is I take my hand on my left rib cage and I shove it towards the right. If you keep on going, you'll feel what'll happen to your left hip. It'll, it'll go up towards your head. And so now people are like, Oh, this left day I see this left day I see it's like, well, my issue was, is I saw a lot of people with a right AIC air quotes, where it's like, it's the exact opposite. 
So for me, I was like, okay, I can't follow an algorithm and assume everybody's the same thing. I have to have an explanation as to what happens when I see a left hip hike. And this is what it is. It is a pelvis that is so far on the right side that the right side needs to start pushing back to the left because all the weight is on that right leg. And so what it does is it shoves the hip forward because I can't produce enough hip internal rotation to control that amount of weight. So I've got to squeeze my right glute to shove my pelvis forward towards my toes to, in order to get this wider turn back to the left to try to get weight off my right side, but it just kind of goes up into the left. It goes up towards the left shoulder, but the left side doesn't have IR. So it hikes the hip up to try to get some. Does that make sense a little bit? No, it, yeah, no, no, it does. It does. No, I, I followed, I actually, I did follow that. So I did. Um, and again, the only reason I could is because my, my background in PRI and the pelvic, um, the pelvic restoration course. And because I'm so familiar now with Bill's model and wides and arrows, I can appreciate how anyone listens to this who <clears> isn't familiar and those like that is probably very hard to follow. Like it's, uh, yeah. like the one thing that keeps coming to my head is that like humans are just fucking complex in every way, not only from a behavioral standpoint, from just from, well, I was about to say from a movement standpoint, but movement is behavior. So really it is all just behavior. You know what but I, I feel talking- like, and you know, I feel like this is like a, a very like, and he might, you know, disagree with me or, or whatever. And I hope he doesn't, but like, I feel like bill is a combination between PRI human locomotion, like Thomas Mashad, the malalignment syndrome. Right. And then biotensegrity and then a bunch of other things. Right. But like old school osteopathy. Yeah. osteopathy. It's all osteopathy. Like everything we're talking about is osteopathy comes down to that. But you know, when I read the malalignment syndrome, I'm like, holy shit, this makes so much sense. This is like where PRI got their stuff from. It's just a little bit different. I'm like, this is like the textbook if you want to understand this stuff. And then Thomas Mashad was the, you know, he uses early, mid and late propulsion. And I'm like, okay, he's talking, you know, that makes sense. Now I'm like, okay, this is the resource that probably influenced Bill. Had to, because like of when this was written and how this, like how he describes these things. And then, you know, obviously just like everybody, like myself, like Bill, you start to have these original thoughts. Now you start to put pieces together. And so that's where this whole center of mass thing for me came was like, what is the differentiation between the different phases of gait? The only thing that I could find was the shin angle. And I'm like, this is it. If the shin is rocked backwards, or tilted back, the center of gravity's back. If it's tilted forward, like the ankle rocker, that's when it's going forward. So the ankle rocker is more mid stance and the toe rocker's toe off. I'm like, okay, this is how these things come together. And so there's a lot of, it's not just about memorizing what somebody says, but it's also like, hey, what are the books they're reading? Do you know what I mean? And then let me dive deeper into them to get some ideas, original thought. And so- that's why, like, when anybody asks me, like, what books would you read or what course would you take? I'm like, take all of them. <laughs> but the biggest thing is, like, I can't say that, like, my, the knowledge that I have, the way that I think about things comes from one source. I think it's influenced 
I would, I, I'll be the first one to say this is influenced a lot by PRI, by Bill. Um, and then honestly, I had the luxury of working with osteopaths almost all throughout my career. And so a lot of the stuff that's being talked about now, I kind of heard a little bit about it from them, but I just didn't have the understanding to absorb it yet. I was like, I'm not there. What you're talking about, I'm not there. But now I am. And now I'm like, wow, what they were telling me before, like that's where it's at. Cause that is fundamental to everything. So this stuff is confusing and it requires a lot of time. Like it's taken me years and years and years. And that's what people have to realize. You look at a guy like the rock. It's like, I want a body like him. It's like this guy, you know how many years he's been trained for 30 years to look like that. It's the same thing with his knowledge. It's like, I've, thought about this stuff for the last 10, 15 years, every day, like obsessively trying to put the pieces together and then not including the thousands and thousands of hours I've worked with people. And so if you don't get this stuff right away, it is okay. But what I would suggest is find people that are talking the way that you want to think and then learn from them. And honestly, and I'm going to say this like very bluntly, like pay them because I did that. I found somebody, I listened to a podcast. I'm like, I want to think like this guy. And I went, reached out to him. Like, I will pay you to learn from you because then they're also invested in you, right? The people are going to be generous, but I find like if you pay them, then they know you're also interested and then ask them what to read. It's like, what is your personal library? Any successful people you think about, you like, if I'm thinking about like Bill Gates or Warren Buffett, I type in the internet, what are books they recommend? Do you know what I mean? Because it's influenced them. And so that's what I would suggest. Like, it's not just come from one source, comes from many and experience. Yeah. Or where did Gates and, uh, and and both a word who did they learn from as well who were their mentors too well yeah. you're 100 right it's uh the, the other book and we said this last night the other one that everyone mentions is and i, I just made sure i pulled up so i had the, the title right that newman's book the kinesiology of the muscle cleat yes. system everyone recommends that and human locomotion they're all like those two books so and some people recommend the man alignment center too and then bios integrity but by graeme scar like that one as well like it is i would yeah. also add recognizing and treating breathing disorders by chai tao like I, I i studied under him you know that i he was uh, really? yeah yeah, I I I did four years of neuromuscular and physical therapy here in Ireland. Um, under they're known as the National Training Center here in Ireland. But John Sharkey is the founder of that, and John is actually very well known in the bios integrity world. He's actually a um, he's like one of the top uh fucking dissection dissectionists. Is that a word? Like he he's really good. At, like anatomy is like one of John's big things. But John has been. John has been talking about fascia, like when fascia was like a quack thing. Like so, like all yeah. like the all like the chartered physios here in Ireland can't they hate John? Like think he's a fucking nut job. Yeah. And even though John was like on all the Irish Olympic teams and the medical staff, like and because John is really he's like any sort of semi genius. He's fucking nuts, like, and he goes off talking about like I heard one of podcasts there lately, and he was talking just about consciousness, morality, and ethics. But yet, like 
you know, if you looked at his his background on papers, like this guy's an anonymous and a physical therapist, but yeah, he's talking about morality and <laughs> ethics. Yeah. But that's just who John is. Like, he's he's universal. But John was like best mates with fucking Leon, and basically he roped Leon. Rope sounds terrible, but he got Leon in as like one of our lecturers. So we had Leon for like four weekends on our wow. uh, on our higher diploma course. Yeah, Leon tra- treated me, and all I got treatments off Leo or Leo wow. Leon. And man, I never like his hands were like unbelievable. He was, and Leon was a huge man, like a big, yeah. big, strong man. And you could just tell the years of experience in his hands. Like it was just, yeah. it was, it was amazing. <clears throat> so he was. It's impressive. Like, you know, that's exactly what you said, where it's you find who these people learn from. And you know what? Before Bill ever <clears throat> posted anything or whatever. I was always reading things by Eric Cressy, by Mike Robertson, uh, I think Reinhold as well, like a bunch of those people. And they kept on referencing him. And I'm like, where the hell is this guy? I can't find anything on this guy. I don't, can't find an email, can't find anything. And then eventually I listened to Mike Robertson's podcast with Mike Ron Karate. And I'm like, damn, this guy is smart. And I was doing PRI at the time and I was trying to put things together. And I'm like, this is who I need to reach out to. And that's kind of how I got on this train. So, you know, Bill started posting this stuff, but like I was learning from Mike five years before the bill came up with his, like his intensive and like putting these things together. And so it was like, you got to find people like that who think differently and who have learned from, you know, or who have taken the courses that, you know, like are, are very complex, but they understand it. They know how to apply it. Cause you could take PRI. Like when I took PRI, I'm like, how the hell do I apply this? Like they tell me these exercises, but I have yeah. no idea when and why to use this. And if I've got somebody who's like, look, Alex, I'm not, I'm not getting on the ground and breathing. Like I'm coming here to train. Like I'm not in pain. I'm coming here to train. Like, well, how do I take the 90, 90 breathing and, and make it into a squat? Like yeah. that was very difficult. And then you have people like that who, who have had that problem already, but solved it five years ago and now know what to do. And like, that's what you have to do. Those are the people you got to look for and learn from. 100%. Yeah, I, I agree. Like two, two final things out of that is like, I always kind of, it's something I suppose like I say to myself, but I've said to other individuals, like when other individuals are kind of trying to find a bit of a, you know, a, a bit of a roadmap in life, I'm always like, well, is there like you know is there any area in life that you're passionate about or that you feel you'd love to explore and then go find a mentor in that area but just but but just to add on to that too i I am a big proponent of going to the originator of anything but there there is something you touched on and i touched on this too that sometimes the originator sometimes they're actually not great at teaching their model no, and so and and so sometimes it's really good to actually go to some of their pupils who actually do a better job of teaching their model. Do you know what I mean? So it's like there, so like there's certain individuals that can that actually because you you kind of said you said something in past. I don't know if you realized, um, if it's something you said before. So maybe it's something that you've scripted in your mind. But you said if you like the way somebody is is you know saying something or yeah, I'm paraphrasing here but or speaking it and you're like yeah, what they're saying I like the way they're saying it make because it makes sense to me the way they're describing mm. that 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 particular model so like you like Mike uh, Grant what say Mike's second name Mike Ron Karate 
run karate so mike it sounds to me that mike done a better job at distilling down like pri and bill stuff that made sense to you than it did when you did we went directly to pri or even bill yes. himself maybe and yeah. it's the same with me it's the same with me with, with, with bill stuff is that i've actually now don't get me wrong there's certain stuff i think there's certain stuff within bill's model that that bill explains perfectly but there's other aspects i'm like i'm still not getting that where i went to like zach or you or connor harris i'm like now that makes sense to me yes. but the way they explain it it just made more sense in my mind because listen we're all shaped by different experiences and our frames of reference are different so just the way certain people describe certain things it just resonates with different people for for, for those reasons another resource actually i found really helpful to after i went to pri and kind of delved back into the builds model was actually pat davidson's book the coach's guide to optimizing movement mm-hmm. there's, there's certain parts in that book yeah and you're like oh that's what that is in bill's model that made sense the way pat wrote that so there's actually exactly. there's certain because there were certain parts when i read that and i was like that's a nugget that's a nugget that's a nugget and like i'm like that's from the intensive that's from the intensive but it makes sense the way pat wrote that to me it made more sense well i think i think you made a good point where you're like you sometimes when you go to the original source like you know it's hard to they're not the greatest at teaching because they're still thinking about it. like they're very good thinkers but but describing is a different skill altogether. But not only that, when you go to original source, they're, and I hate to say this, but it's like, they're almost like a little more fixed in their mindset because it's like, this is their model and they've got the blinders on now. And it's like, you know, like I am now thinking in this model, whereas like you've got somebody coming into it, trying to learn from it. And you're like, okay, I'm taking their model, pieces of their model, but I'm, pairing it up with all these other pieces that I put together so I can try to understand it with my prior information. Do you know what I mean? And sometimes even I get that too, where I'm like, okay, I'm just kind of focusing on this area or I'm focusing on the information I'm trying to put out, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go and take this course because I need to get a frame. I need to get like a refresh. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. and like, so you start taking different courses now, and you're like, okay, I just need to hear somebody else talk. Like, yeah. you know, like I'm going to see David Gray in June because I'm like, I just want to hear how he describes things. I've and, seen him in two weeks. Are you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's coming to Canada, so I'm like, I got to go take the drive to see him, even just to meet him. Do you know what I mean? But like. Uh, he seems like a good dude. So for, for oh, he's, he's great. He's great. You love him. Yeah. Love yeah. Him. So so for me, it's just like as you said, like like Pat comes out of the book. You're like, I'm just interested to hear how he puts together this information. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And, exactly. And, yeah. And, and even David, like, you know, and everyone's got different experiences and different ways of thinking. And the more you can learn from people and their different ways of thinking, the more you can create your own mental model. Right. Yeah. The, the, the originator thing for me is just more so I think it's still important to go to the originator to make sure that there's no misconceptions or there's no assumptions being made about their model. Because what you find an awful lot yeah. is a lot of a lot of people will criticize a model or a system, but it's because they don't fully understand the system or the model. So I'm like, well, have you actually spoke like, you know, an example was always like like what does the fms really stand for like what like what it like what is like what what is what's the purpose of the screen and people are like well it doesn't predict sport performance or it's like but that's not its purpose like have you actually spoken to gray or lee the original founders of it and said to him what is the point what what's the purpose of the screen is it this or for this you know just i'm using that as an example you know yeah what I mean? for sure yeah yeah, yeah. But 
so like I, I'm always like I'm always like I think it's very important to go to the original source to make sure you fully understand the like you, you're just you can ask the like the it's coming straight from the horse that you can fully understand that am I understanding your model correctly before you start like because people like I always say a lot of um arguments are usually based off false assumptions mm-hmm. because people don't have they don't have the full facts so I'm like have you gone to the original source and posed this question to them and then you know kind of had a discussion around okay if am I understanding your model, your system correctly? Okay, if I am, and you'll let me know if I am, and then you have that discussion. Okay, so and then you you'll find out if if you weren't, well then your assumption was incorrect. But then if you were, then your criticism or your you know your your critical feedback then still stands valid. But it's just that most people's uh, argument against any one sort of thought process or system or model is because it's based off a false assumption or or they don't have all the facts of it. So that's why for me it's very important in that regard to go to the originator, but. The other thing I'm talking about is that the, the other thing I'm talking about that we're kind of more touching on is that sometimes when an originator is trying to teach their system or model and you're just not grasping it, sometimes yeah. somebody else does a better job at actually teaching their model because they yeah. may have a frame of reference or a way of word that just that just makes more sense to your internal world because yeah. of like so for instance if I want to go learn physics or something or like like if I went to someone who's like you know. 10 rungs ahead of me on that ladder i can't learn from that person who's 10 rungs ahead i need to learn from someone who's like just one rung ahead you yeah know what i mean you don't want to learn least... from einstein or friedman you want to go learn from like maybe their assistant or or somebody yeah, who's yeah. from them or something like that but i think you made a great point actually somebody asked me this on a q and i did yesterday it's like what do you thought about fms i'm just like look do i use fms no but what i did when i before i took fms i bought every single book that he wrote, like I read movement, I read athletic body and balance. I, you know, there was another one I think he wrote, but if you actually look at his book movement, it is actually very well written and it gives you a lot of nuggets. That's not like him saying, Hey, like I'm saying that this all predicts, not like this all predicts injury, stuff like that. It's like, no, this is just an analysis of movement. And there's a lot of things you can break out. And then that's what SFMA does a very good job on. And I actually prefer SFMA way better. Um, But if you, what I would suggest is before you write something off, you're like, let me absorb, let me try to read all the information. Before I took it, I, I read those books. So I was going into it with an understanding of how they perceive things and how they talk about the body. And so for me, it's more exactly how you said, it's like, you know, people can make these claims, but sometimes just marketing, you know, and, and if you really want to understand them, dive deep, ask them directly, as you said, and then if they still don't give you the answers that you like, don't totally write them off. Just be like, Hey, they have some great things, but there's things that I don't use because my context doesn't allow it. Like, I'm not going to go to, um, you know, I don't work with a lot of sports like, or like athletes currently I used to not as much anymore. And because of that, I don't absorb information with that context. I'm not like, okay, how can I improve sports performance? I'm like, look, I deal with a lot more pain right now. So I'm thinking about how can I maximize pain? So I'm looking at through that lens and context is very important, but as you said, I think sometimes the originators, you got to learn from them and then you got to learn from 
other people who have learned from them so that you can be like, all right, well, you know, sometimes, like I said, sometimes you can ask them directly the originator and like, they're very like in their model. They don't see outside of it. So sometimes it can be difficult where now they're, you know, their model's the hammer and everything's a nail and like, it could be challenging and it's, it's not their fault. It's just, it's very difficult when you're still trying to figure out your own model. Right. To oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. That's a great point too. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. listen, that's yeah. So yeah. So those, those two points, I always just think that you should, if you can go to the originator to make sure you do fully understand their model before you give any sort of critical feedback on it. Cause again, as I said, I just find that a lot of arguments were based off false assumptions, like exactly there at the FMS, for instance, like people are like, Oh, uh, you know, I, I had an athlete that were in pain and so we did the screen and then great, but you're not meant to screen people in pain. Yeah. That's, that's not, <laughs> he said that, that is, so like great say, that's what the SFMA was for. The SFMA was the medical model because that dealt with pain. And then the screen was just to see three or yeah, three main things. Are you, are you in pain? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have a gross asymmetry and do you have like a baseline level of some type of movement and And like people don't want to shit all over Gray. And I always say like, it's so much easier to destroy than to create. And like all Gray was doing was like, listen, we don't have any like just baseline entry measure to, for movement quality. And, he, and he's like, I just tried to come up with something like, mm-hmm. you know, is, mm-hmm. is a perfect? No, but like, and like, this, this is one thing that, I'm always just always saying to people, I'm like, if you're going to come to me with criticism, you better have a solution. That's it. That's it. Like you're, you know, don't, don't just be, don't, don't just add more fuel to the fire and be part of the problem. Be part of a solution. Like what we want is critical or is yeah, critical thinking and feedback is what we want. Not, not criticism or arguments just so that you can voice yourself to, to make it feel like you have some self-worth in the universe. Like yeah. add, like contribute something positive here. And that's the thing with like Gray and like he actually tried to contribute something positively to the world of like exercise and movement. Cause I remember on the podcast, Gray said, he's like, listen, like if, like in my he's like in my head i just wanted a screen that like a physical education teacher could use yes to be to, to like qualify like all the students like just something basic and like of course like it grew like and of course it grew into a business and a market and all that and there is a whole part to it too but his gen his initial intent was genuine and it's just like people just need to step back and have a think about that for a second it's like the man was trying to add value to the world and like even like things like the bio signature where charles poliquin and of course Okay, there were supplements and all that too. But again, I'm just like, the man created something to make like the whole training process and body composition a bit, but like, you know, he he brought something into creation and people are just kind of like, ah, oh, it's all bollocks. And it's like, well, what have you, what, what, give me your, give me, like, what have you brought to the table here? Exactly. And most times they haven't. They just want to fucking complain because that's all they got. But yeah, finally, boys, go to, I think it's very important to go to the originator. But then on the other side of our discussion was that sometimes originators do a poor job of actually teaching their model and sometimes their students or people who learn from them do a much better job at that. And sometimes yeah. it's better to go to that. So yeah, I, I find that too. And even when, when you are like, when you are like focusing on a topic, like let's say it, it's like fucking gate. <laughs> if you like, you know, you could say, right. And let's say you've got like five different books on gate. Like you'll find that you'll take away a bit from each of those five books. And like that book made sense. And that bit of gate to me, that yeah. clicked there. Whereas this book, and then it could be, it might be a, a person like this person, when they describe gate, like you might learn gate from Gary Ward and then, and then hear David Gray talk about something or Gary Gray talk about something, or even you talk about gate or Connor Harris. And it's like, there's five different guys all talking about the same thing, gate, but I learned to, I, I have a much better perspective because each five of them kind of presented it in their own unique way. 
and it just it, it gave me a much better rounded sort of uh, take on gate now rather than if I just learn from this one person who's the gate guy and I just focus on their sort of own as you kind of already said their own lens of looking at gate mm-hmm. now, now I had this more sort of holistic global perspective of like five or six or seven different people and like now gate is so much more clear in my mind exactly yeah that's a great way like you have to there's not one book but multiple that you can take and you know some people don't write or speak in the way that that vibes with you and how you process information. So that's why it's very important to go to as many people as possible um, so that you can get clear. And yeah, some people just don't present it in a way that makes sense to you. And, and that's okay. It's not, it's not their fault. It's just, they, you know, like what I would say to people, it's like, so I'm a wide infrasternal angle. I see the world from a wide infrasternal angle lens. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, I process everything through that. It's the same thing with, you know, pains, like, look, I got injury in my knee. Like I don't personally, but let's just say, and then it's like, Hey, I don't know how to fix it myself. How can I help you? Do you know what I mean? And so like you start to start to look at the world that way. And so that's why it's important that you go to different sources because those people are all thinking from a, a, a bias of some sort. Everybody has them, a bias of some sort. Yeah, and then yeah. You don't want to fall within a certain bias, but if you get that roundness, as you said, you can create your own bias and that's what's key. It makes you adaptable and not a fixed mindset. And real last final thing too, for me anyway, definitely is that also just with the originator and when they are teaching our model and system or model or system, model and system, basically Thomas, same thing, is that we just talked about this at the very, very start. They're also always on their continual journey of mastery so they're always trying to refine how they're teaching their model too so just have a bit of compassion and empty towards that too like you know like exactly. no, no like like look like even if when you do look at bill and his information i do feel like if you were to go back and even just look at the the, the sort of the, the 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 progression of bill's information over the last three or four years as he's put it out himself you can see how he, he has he gotten better. much better. Yeah, he, he has gotten better. way more better and more uh, like the sequence of how he's putting out his information now is because he, he's refining how to teach his model too. And ju- it's just exactly you just alluded to with the Evolve mentorship. Mm. You know, it's, mm. you know, so the actual, the, the originator too, like they're in their own sort of process again of of getting better at delivering their message. And that's all part of their journey, all, all part of their their journey, their journey to mastery or, you know, their their mastery journey, if you like. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's well put. I think everybody's still continuing to learn. And so, as you said before, constructive criticism is key to provide them with a solution. Like, Hey, you didn't explain this very well. I'm confused. If you did it like this, that would be helpful. Like then they're like, okay, well, if you're asking that, then a lot of people are probably asking the same thing or feeling the same way. And so it's just like, we're in an industry we should be helping people. And like, that's what everybody most people i should say have the the right intent to help push the needle forward in this industry so that we're not getting stuck you know in certain dogmas because there's people are like oh well the research says this i'm like look we drive research do you know what i mean like it's important to stay within some degree of scientific you know understandings and scientific like backings but like I, I will say this, things that I do to help people are not backed by science because it's not there yet. You need somebody 
you know, like us or people who are learning this information to go and are willing to do a PhD to study this stuff. But like, I'm not willing to do that. Like, I don't want to go back to school, but like, do you know what I mean? Like it's, we can't just hide behind the veil of, you know, it's scientific evidence versus evidence-based. Like both of them are good. They work, you know, like people are getting results every day. And that's why I always say like, whether it's a BOSU ball, whether it's a Theragun, whether whatever, like people get results with it. So none of it is wrong. None of it's bad. Like anyone who says that things are useless don't actually have an understanding because instead you should be like, how could I use this in this context? Like before, I'm gonna be honest with you, like way back when I first started this industry and I was arrogant and I got an ego because I came out of school and I thought I knew everything. Things like BOSU balls, stability balls, aqua bags. I'm like, those things are so stupid. There's no way. Because I heard one person talk about it that BOSU balls are useless. And I'm like, well, they're useless. And this is why. Because this guy, and I'm kind of regurgitating what that person said. But then you start to actually understand the body and the complexity of it. And that people do everything. Like they do stretching and it helps. Like all this stuff works. But if you want to be more strategic and get results more specifically, it is for you to understand why they can help, what they could do, and in what context it will help. And so I think you still have this resistance of people who are, you're starting to attack their biases and what they believe to be true. And then once you then say, hey, it may not be the best way to think of it, they get emotional because it's like, whoa, like if you tell me that what I'm thinking, what I'm doing is not the best way, then I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm going to resist you. And like I said, if, if people say a foam roller or a Theragun is useless, I mean, they really don't have any grasp. They're just copy and pasting. And there are a lot of people in this industry that do that. And, and, you know, so it's, it's easier. It's easy to see. Like, I bet you, like when people listen to this, they could be like, I know exactly. I can think of one person exactly who you're talking about um, or not who I'm talking about specifically, but comes to their mind because that's what is resisting the progression. It's like, we have to question things to make sure that people aren't just talking out of their ass, but we also have to be adaptable and have a growth mindset. So that's how we progress our understanding of things. Absolutely. That's all part of the journey, man. It's all, part of all, all part of mastery. Yeah. Listen, uh, savage stuff. So uh, we'll stop record there and then I'll say goodbye to you offline. But for everyone, I hope they really enjoyed that second part with Alex. And no doubt we have we'll have them on again and we'll discuss again and because there's there's a lot more to unpack the yeah. human body is complex in every yeah. way yeah. uh but until next time take care be well and stay strong thanks robbie i appreciate it